0: News, weather and sports from RTHK.
1: Good morning, it's June the 23rd, 2023 and this is Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work,
0: And I'm Janice Wong.
1: On Friday's Back Chat, we're talking about the catastrophic implosion of a submersible that disappeared on its way to the wreck of the Titanic in the North Atlantic Ocean, killing all five people aboard.
0: The somber announcement by the U.S. Coast Guard has put an end to a multinational search and rescue operation that captivated the world since the small tourist craft went missing on Sunday.
1: Rear Admiral John Mauger told reporters that debris found on the seafloor 500 meters from the bow of the Titanic was consistent with the implosion of the sub's pressure chamber.
0: On board the submersible were nautical experts, billionaires and submarine company CEO and British explorer Hamish Harding, who grew up in Hong Kong.
1: And after 9.45, we discuss why Hong Kong has one of the highest and increasing rates of small intestinal cancer in the world. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message here on our Facebook page. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 And uh, we've got uh, some... V- Had deep expert guests on the line today, starting with Professor Stephen B. Williams, who's a professor of marine robotics and a lot of other things at the University of Sydney. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Good Good to be here. Welcome to the show. We also welcome Frank Owen, who is a retired submarine commander in the Royal Australian Navy and the former director of the Australian Submarine Escape and Rescue Project. Uh, Good morning, uh, Mr. Owen. Good morning to you all. Morning. Good morning. Uh, Professor Williams, let's start with you. Uh, this submersible that was going to the bottom of the ocean, uh, we've got, you know, the news is in. They found the wreckage uh, searching huge tracks of the ocean only to find debris 500, you know, 488 meters off the, uh, off the Titanic. Um, uh, should this submersible mm. have been going down there in the first place and repeatedly?
2: Yeah, well, there's a lot of speculation now about the the design and, and whether it was really fit um, for purpose. Um, that composite design, which uh, included titanium end caps and that carbon fiber tube, is a relatively novel design. Um, and I understand that concerns were raised with uh, you know, over safety and, and uh, the manner in which that design had been executed as far back as 2018. So there have been concerns. Uh, I understand that the sub did make several dives previously to, to this sort of depth. But uh, in cycling that pressure, any any anomalies or flaws in the, in the pressure vessel itself may have ultimately led to this uh, tragic end.
0: Right. Professor Williams, you mentioned carbon fibre was used. Is it an unusual material for a, a deep sea vessel?
2: Yeah, it's relatively unusual. So some of these sort of composite... Um, uh, materials are being used. I know of, of some instances of using uh, ceramic materials as well, bonded to to metal structures. Um, more often, um, these have been uh, metal enclosures, so using either titanium or uh, aluminium alloys or or steel. Um, and and we understand how those materials perform under pressure. Um, composites are are strong and relatively lightweight, but. Uh, uh, clearly, in this instance. Um, and, and I guess we'll know a little bit more about the exact nature of the failure, whether it was a carbon plyometer or some other element of the pressure vessel, but something has gone catastrophically wrong.
1: I, I mean, you're making reference to the, uh, well, we all are making reference to the New Republic article that used court documents where apparently uh, an engineer on the project was fired after complaining that he wasn't, he, he first of all had concerns about the engineering and then wasn't allowed to have access to. Perform proper tests on it when when you first heard about this and you knew the submersible that was being involved. Was it were there automatic red flags that went off for you? Were you like, Oh, this sounds like trouble, or or was it like, No, it could be fine?
2: Uh, you know, I think we were all holding out hope, but um, the information that was available and and hearing about the fact that they'd lost communication as the sub was scheduled to be approaching the sea floor yeah that immediately what went through my mind was that this could have ended up in in this catastrophic failure Hmm. Now we all hoped that maybe it was just a failure of the communication systems or some other element of the submarine but or the submersible but it it
1: certainly does look like a a really tragic end to to the search frank owen i mean you you were a command you were a commander in the royal australian navy my my understanding is that military submarines which are I would guess probably among the sturdiest built. They, they don't frequently travel to these kind of depths, and it, you know, it, it's, well, if, yeah. they,
3: if they do, it's a one-way trip. <laughs> and then they're not designed or intended to um, to operate anywhere near that depth. There's no operational need for them to do that. But they need to have the flexibility and and uh, um, maneuverability to to perform a whole lot of functions, and that includes having other systems. Outside that aren't necessarily contained in, in completely pressure-tight enclosures, such as you have in these deep-sea submersibles. So a naval submarine is very different, and even a submarine rescue system is only really going down to like two times the, the normal depth of a of a uh, naval submarine because they will have about that depth they start to suffer from what they call non-elastic deformation, where the hull the doesn't bounce. It, it does it compresses as you go deeper, mm. but it doesn't then bounce back to its normal shape if it goes deeper than that. And shortly after that, you then get this implosion. So submarine, uh, naval submarines, are uh, a very different beast uh, to, to what we saw here.
1: Can you, can you give us an idea of what an implosion would start to look like? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen it in movies where... Everybody's looking around at each other as the dramatic music plays and the pressure gauges are going up and a, a yeah. bead of sweat comes down. I don't know, Sean Connery's face in Hunt for Red October. But I mean, how realistic is that? Like what what actually happens when you think you might be in trouble?
3: Well, if you want to get realism, you don't watch Hunt for Red October. You watch Passport. Okay. Um, and that, that is the most realistic submarine movie I've seen. My wife said to me as she felt my hands... Been claiming as we watched it in the movie theatre, in the cinema, um, and it, it was uh, it really brought home the the human nature of submarines. And you know, everybody's forgetting, in some ways, that the people who are inside this uh, submersible and the people who operate in in, in naval submarines are people who do it either because they enjoy the professionalism, the camaraderie, or because they've seen and had the stories relayed about um from from those who've done deep dives in the uh, in a professional industry such oh. as the o- offshore oil and gas industry and they come back with stories of the wonders of the deep and so people get their um curiosity peaked at that point and they say well I want to have a part of this mm-hmm. I don't want to have to go through all all a career being a deep sea diver I'd like to just just get this experience. So that's where these things come to be slightly different.
1: Hmm. And, and, and would it, I mean, would, would you see like screws popping out or, or would it be a very sudden phenomena with, when an actual implosion occurs?
3: Oh, you wouldn't even see or know anything. Uh, from implosion, uh, you'd have about 20 milliseconds. The brain can't react and, and process that information that fast. Um, this has happened, uh, of course, recently when the, not that long ago, the uh, Argentinian submarine San Juan um, um, took on water, where they believe, um, got into some problems, and it, as it then got deeper and deeper, and then finally it imploded, so did the, the Indonesian submarine, the Mangala, um, mm-hmm. and I have the misfortune to, if you like, to comment on both of those incidents, um, that's probably why I'm still being called on. But um, they both imploded. And even even an Australian, um, and I know that we're not uh, broadcasting necessarily to Australia, but the, the first Australian submarine that was lost and, and not found, in fact, for 103 years after it disappeared, that um, was recovered, It was found off the coast of Rabaul um, with its stern intact... It's, stern torpedo tube cap open its planes hard to rise which means it was trying to get back to the surface Mm -hmm. and the bow completely imploded because it is filled with water and because the stern was therefore equalized it didn't brush but the bow was full of air and then as soon as the the pressure the strength was overcome it, it collapsed so, uh, I mean, one second
1: you'd be concerned about taking on water, and the next second the the twenty milliseconds lights out, just gone.
3: Yes, indeed. And and in this case, they I think they had some warning. Um, I've seen an interview with James Cameron, who reported that um, they have found evidence that the clump weights, the the, the, the detachable um, emergency weights, had been released. Um, and that would have happened uh, as warnings had had come along that something wasn't right with um, with the hull, because this submarine uniquely did, in fact, have um, live monitoring and strain gauges, as they call them, on the hull. So they, they obviously had some sort of warning. They weren't at the bottom, they were above the, um, the Titanic. And that's why the, uh, the, the debris has fallen near the Titanic itself. Um, mm. And then they were hoping to get it on the way up to remove, release the pressure on the hull, and then it's gone.
0: All right. And uh, um, Mr. Owen, of course, the, the question in everyone's mind right now is what happened? What caused the implosion? Um, from your experience, how difficult will it be to find out exactly what happened? I mean, since um, th- there's no black box, right, in, the, in these kind of uh, submersibles? Uh,
3: yes, but, but even a black box will never, won't never will tell you why um, the fuselage or the wings fail on an aircraft. It'll tell you what the conversation's been it'll tell you what command what um uh, thrust or uh, commands have been applied to to the control surfaces um and then what machinery has changed but it won't actually uh, provide that engineering analysis of why um the hull failed and, and so when for example the one of these uh, hawaiian airlines um the the there was this mat, rapid decompression when the whole part of the of the fuselage just in front of the first class section just blew off. Mm. There was obviously some weakness near the door, um, and um, you know, the black box won't tell you that. So, so having a black box in itself is useful to record the last seconds of, oh, I wonder why, and then it stops. So you really won't tell, wouldn't tell you much. That said. I think what they would hope to recover when they recover the pieces, they will find delamination. They will be able to do some deep laboratory analysis to to um, understand why it might have, and perhaps they will be able to determine that if this had been actually a, a long-standing flaw in this part of the uh, the hull, which led to its collapse. Mm. Um,
1: Professor Owens, what what else would you add to that investigation if you were involved? Professor as, Williams, are you talking to? Or, um, oh, yeah, yeah, Professor Paul Williams. Frank, sorry, yeah, and... yeah, Professor Williams. Yeah, what, what, what would you, what would you add <laughs> yeah. to the investigation if you were yeah. involved? In, what, what else would you be looking for? Yeah, yeah I certainly think um, as
2: Mr. Owens has said is is um, trying to recover some of the the pieces of the, the subversible Be the next step in really understanding what's gone wrong, which element of the pressure vessel has failed. So it is a composite design with you know metallic end caps. Uh, there's a viewport. There's the the carbon fiber hull. Um, I suspect they may be able to have some idea of which element has failed just with a visual inspection, so they'll have the remotely operated vehicles in situ with high-resolution imagery coming back. Um, they'll be able to do a bit of investigation of the debris field and, and look at the, the major components of the sub, submarine or the submersible, um, and, but I, yeah, and they may attempt to recover some of this. But this is a challenge in itself. This is... You know, the debris is located at 3,800 metres under the seafloor. They have robotic submarines with manipulators. They may be able to to recover small pieces or drag some parts of the, the submarine up. But there is a fair bit of weight there, and, and you know,
1: getting that back to the surface is going to be a pretty difficult process in itself. I understand the communications went out quite early in the descent what is normally a two to three hour descent is there is there i mean is there, does that tell us anything or what what more can what more light can that shed on the situation if the fact that the communications went out so early in the descent did they i mean if they had an incident do you think they uh, you know started taking on water lost communications and went down really quickly um because they were found quite close to the titanic so the, yeah. yeah
2: the reports i've heard is that they were about an hour and 45 into a two-hour descent so you would have expected them to be quite close, and given that the debris field's not, you know, it's within a few hundred meters of the wreck itself, they, they would have been nearing the bottom um, when the, the failure of the system occurred. Um, whether their um, whole integrity sensors would have alerted them the fact that there was an imminent failure, and, and as Mr. Ong said, you know, it seems that they may have dropped the weights and, and tried to ascend um, before the failure occurred. Um you know you, you, you have to uh wonder what was what was happening at the time. Now, I have seen reports that the u s Navy actually has recordings that are consistent with uh acoustic recordings that are consistent with the implosion, so sound travels very far underwater, so they do have recordings of appears, of uh, the time when the failure occurred, so that they'll be able to backtrack that to. Where within the the dog of the, the the vessel was was meant
1: to be, but in all likelihood it was it was quite close to the sea floor uh, when the failure occurred. I mean, this is this is an interesting little piece of news that's come out. Is this this report of the U.S. Coast Guard picking up on a noise that indicated an an implosion event on Sunday, uh, and yet we're just hearing about that today after you know millions and millions of dollars have been spent on you know aircraft combing the surface of the ocean for thousands and thousands of miles and you know i mean i mean uh, i understand perhaps they wanted to keep up the morale of people in the search and it wasn't completely confirmed uh what the noise was but it does seem like they might have actually had a pretty good idea of what went wrong on sunday now is that is that fair or what how should we interpret that yeah,
2: I mean, some of those passive acoustic systems, you know, you do have to get the data back. Some of them aren't connected directly to um, you know, to, to land and, and aren't necessarily monitored in real time for this sort of event. So somebody's going to have to have gone back through the acoustic recordings um, to try and find this event. I expect that they've been doing that over the last few days, and, and yet it's not entirely clear when, when
1: it's become obvious that that's, that's actually, uh, you know, they have heard um, uh, the sound of that implosion occurring. Commander, Commander Owen, yeah. they, said, they said the Coast
3: Guard picked up on yeah. that. Yeah, I've got a, a slightly different perspective on this. Um, they, they didn't hear it, and they, uh, the, the Navy heard it, and they yeah, had Navy. this um, the subsea arrays. Um, they've, been in, they've been in the water for, for years, decades, and they, they were used to track Russian submarines. Coming through the Greenland ice and UK gap and across the Atlantic, there's a deep sound channel that comes through um, down around the sort of two to three thousand metres, and and it captures the sound and passes it through. So they've been listening to that, and they do. They have. It's called now. It's called it was called SOSUS. Um It's now called the Integrated Undersea Surveillance System (IUSS). And these arrays had heard it, but it wasn't definitive. and so they'd informed them. In order to ascertain uh, whether there actually was debris on the bottom, they needed to get these deep um, ROVs on site. And the logistics of getting all of them mobilised and finding the ship and getting the ship there and then sailing the 370 nautical miles and then positioning themselves over the site and launching and getting it down meant that almost the first occasion where they were able to if you like, join the dots. Was this morning, hmm. and in the meantime, there was there wasn't uh, a completely definite um, catastrophic implosion. Therefore, they had to go against. Uh, that there was still hope, and therefore, they were justified in spending them all the, those resources um, to search. Hmm. So, do so you think that you think that the broader
1: search was justified?
3: Oh, I, th- I think it was justified because there was no certainty that it, it, it's like uh you know you you hear a a crash and you you say Oh well that someone's had a had an accident and they're dead well this, that's not the case you actually you- you'll keep progressing until you know that it's not that it has been the worst outcome, and they didn't know that it was the worst outcome so they they and if they had stopped at that point and then discovered this floating just below the surface, as a Mary Celeste, um, having um, consumed all lot of oxygen and, more importantly, not been able to stop um, producing or to remove the carbon dioxide, and therefore they'd fallen asleep, that would have been even worse because yeah. they said, oh, my God, we could have searched for it. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Professor Williams. Professor Williams, um, when it comes to uh, deep sea exploration or uh, deep sea tourism, um, what are the regulations right right uh, right now? I mean, um, what do uh, people have to follow? I mean, are there rules that people have to follow?
2: In in regulations, in terms of building these sort of pressure vessels
1: and taking people out of them, I, I mean, as as a tourism is. industry. Mm
2: so it is somewhat unregulated at this point so my understanding of the report that I've read of the concerns that, that were raised in, in 2018 is, is that um there was some serious concern expressed by one of the members of the board of ocean gate um so they would have designed the pressure vessel to be able to withstand this sort of pressure and and you know the thought about the materials they've used uh, the size of the pressure vessel, thickness of the the hull, and things like that, and and done all the engineering analysis prior to building um, the pressure vessel, but my understanding is that they didn't do any extensive testing or characterization of that hull before putting it into use. So the design says it should be all right. Sorry,
1: go ahead. I was going to say, have you read the, the article with the New Republic with the reports from the court documents where they, uh, you know, they get into quite a lot of detail about the tests that were not performed. Um, did you have a look at that?
2: Yeah. And and that is concerning, the fact that, that these sorts of uh, concerns were raised and, and you know, put aside, I think it is a bit of a concern. And, and I think we really have to be quite careful and diligent, particularly when we're starting to. You know, look at the, the the commercial use of these sorts of, of systems, and I think um, there obviously will be a, a lot of um, uh, thought now given into into how we can regulate these kind of industries and try to minimize the risks for any any future endeavors along these lines. Um, you know, and and another challenge I suspect is that these are are operating largely outside of um, um, state waters, so. You know, there's a little bit of grey about where the responsibility lies with ensuring that these sorts of um, vessels are are fit for purpose. All
0: right, Mr. Owen, do you, do you think this kind of a deep sea expedition is uh, really suitable for tourists?
3: Well, um, I think I, I, I was saying before that the tourists will drive this themselves. They want to. They hear about the. Uh, the great experiences of those that have been in the slightly more regulated offshore oil and gas industry and they want to sample it themselves. But to, to go back, perhaps if I may, to the um, regulations on it, mm. um, there is no regulation that says you can't go under the sea you know, in a submersible. Um, what the the various stakeholders um, have done in the past and continues to do is that they such as a a company like chevron or somebody or a a university that might be conducting subsea research they say that their risks need to be managed by review competent review from another organization that's independent and so they will approach these companies organizations like dnv and lloyds and they and that those organizations will then go through the design and um Identify the areas where they think it could be improved, and measure it against their their, their defined, they've built sets of what they call rules, um, which are the, the the they define the methodology that they do to say, have you got this item? Have you got this capability? So, the tourist industry isn't faced, especially when it's it's a self-funded and individually owned company, there isn't necessarily any accountability higher up, Mm. Um, and it's that lack of accountability, I think, which urges uh, the impatient um, uh, owners, such as Sharman here, who says, I don't have time for that, and I'm here to change the world, and I just want to get on with it.
1: All right, we're going to have um, to... yeah. yeah. We're going, to, we're, going to have to, uh, we're going to have to hold it right yeah. there for a moment. We are going to have uh, Commander Owen with us after a short break for the news. We are going to be saying goodbye to Professor Stephen B. Williams, the Professor of Marine Robotics at the University of Sydney. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today as we are talking about the implosion of the uh, submersible that was lost on its way to visit the Titanic wreckage at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, having a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms, hot with sunny intervals, max temperature around 32 degrees. But there is a thunderstorm warning in effect until at least 1130 today. Uh, so I guess be careful and don't get struck by lightning. Right now, the temperature is 30 degrees Celsius and 78 percent at Chat. And now the news with Tom Warden.
0: The U.S. Coast Guard has confirmed that the debris covered on the ocean floor near the wreck of the Titanic in the North Atlantic belongs to the submersible, which disappeared on Sunday. Five people on board are thought to have died. Among them was Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, the firm which runs the Titanic voyages. A Honduran woman accused of running a highly profitable people-smuggling business has been extradited to the United States. Maria Mendoza has been charged with human trafficking and money laundering by a court in the state of Arizona. And locally, a 45-year-old man has died from stab wounds to the chest at a house in Lun New village in Tun Police said at about 10.30 p.m., a 39-year-old woman reported that her husband had been stabbed and injured. Paramedics arrived, but the man died from his injuries at the scene. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's
3: time to carry out repair works for aging buildings. Operation Building Bright 2.0 offers financial assistance of up to $50,000 to owner-occupiers. The Fire Safety Improvement Work Subsidy Scheme also offers financial assistance up to 60% of construction and consultant fees to owners' corporations. Applications have started. Please submit applications online, by mail, or in person from now till the September 30th closing date. Call 3188-1188 for details.
2: The Minimum Wage Commission is collecting views on the review mechanism of the statutory minimum wage. With reference to the views collected from the first stage consultation, the Commission would like to collect more specific suggestions from various sectors in this round. You are invited to send your views to the Commission on or before June 25th. For details, please visit its website at mwc.org.hk.
1: And I'm Andrew Work and we're back on Back Chat with Janice Wong. Uh, We are continuing to talk about the uh, sad end of the submersible that was on its way to visit the Titanic at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean uh, that has now been determined to have suffered a catastrophic implosion. Uh, Continuing on the show, we have Frank Owen, retired submarine commander in the Royal Australian Navy and the former director of the Australian Submarine Escape and Rescue Project. Joining us now is Professor Eric Fusil, uh, Shipbuilding Hub Director from the University of Adelaide. Uh, Good morning, Professor
4: Fusil. Good morning. Good morning
1: thank you for joining us uh, you know we've had uh we've had commander owen and, and another professor from the university of sydney on earlier but i'm going to ask you something i asked them earlier did the design of this particular submersible and the depths to which it was descending cause you concern when you first caught wind of this and looked into it i mean did you did, did red flags go up did you think oh this people should have known this was going to be trouble i guess i thought that was quite
4: innovative because that pressure vessel was combining two things. You have on one hand a titanium shell and on the other hand a carbon fiber composite. And these two do behave very differently. The titanium pressure means it's a high yield strength. but you have an elastic behavior of the material that can contract and then expand to its initial shape of a large range of pressures. On the yes. other hand, you've got the carbon fiber uh, composite, which is very stiff and which will resist to change its shape. So you can see that combination of two materials with opposite properties was raising some questions to me. Mm. And,
1: uh, you know, we talked earlier about a story that was in the New Republic Uh, where a ship's pilot, David Lockridge, uh, had concerns. He was part of the testing group and was not allowed to perform a a range of tests on the materials that he wanted to conduct and subsequently got fired. Uh, I mean, did you, I don't know if you read this article, but I mean, did you think that those tests should have been performed as advised by Mr. Lockridge?
4: I think it's a it's a reasonable thing to do. I mean, uh, I think that Franco, Owen has just mentioned, how important it, it is to have a design uh, certified and some verification made on the design, some validation performed on the manufactured product, and some tests. So I think that. All this does make sense and uh, this is why we've got some classification societies that have edited, edited some rules to help the designers going through that process. The fact that the Ocean Gate owner basically decided not to, to play by the rules was taking massive risks and unfortunately these risks may have proven fatal to uh, the titan and her crew and passengers.
1: Mm, I mean- Mm-hmm.
4: He was on. He
1: was on there, and apparently, he had made many descents in this vehicle himself. Uh, so, I mean, there there may be some cosmic justice in this, or maybe it just suggests that he was very confident in the design. I, I, where, where would you
4: fall on that? I mean, having confidence is one thing. Uh, having the demonstration of seaworthiness is is something entirely different and based on, on facts. and and, and engineering uh, rational, Um, meaning that that innovative technology, that combination of titanium metallic pearl with a composite material is not something that is extensively known and and researched. Uh, So to have the technology readiness level, meaning the maturity of the technology, requires not only some tests in laboratories, but actually a whole range of tests at sea. The thing is that with composite materials, when you have that delamination, and once again, it's only speculation at this point in time, you need to carefully inspect your uh, composite to know that it is sound enough to, to proceed. We do not have that need with uh, metallic-only pressure vessels because we, we know how they behave. We can have some strain gauges that can equip them. So we have a much better understanding on the metallic-only hulls. For that combination, I think it required much more to understand the level of confidence. As you have mentioned, we could put into that endeavour.
1: Hmm.
4: Commander Owen, uh, I'm,
1: I'm sure. I'm guessing the Australian Navy ships were metallic-only, but perhaps with rescue vehicles, you've dealt with uh, uh, yeah. vehicles that had composite materials. What, what, how do you feel about that?
3: Well, I, I agree with it, but the and and I would also add that um, the uh, perception that was held by Stockton Rush that um, going through um, the rigors of the engineering analysis that uh, would be provided by um, these one of these certifiers um, is too much. When Ramora, the Australian submarine rescue vehicle, was was designed and delivered, this was um, at that stage while it used. A pressure vessel was, that had previously been in survey, the rest of the system, included a, uh, including a, a unique articulated skirt, but the whole system was designed, built, tested and certified and brought to Australia in 23 weeks. And the uh, Detnorsky Veritas surveyors worked with the designers all the way through, so um it is just simply not true that um these organizations just sit in their back rooms and, and um look at it at their leisure and they provide a very very important risk reduction approach to um or a, a very important approach to reduce the risk um in uh, taking on what is more challenging than going to the moon hmm. is is it uh, are there different rules
1: for Submersibles that are operating in international waters versus those that are still within the jurisdiction of a company's off- or a country's offshore <laughs> regulatory environment.
3: No, the, these rules are not about where you can operate it and who and who has jurisdiction. They're providing the engineering certification that then will be accepted or not by a jurisdiction if it has um, uh, jurisdiction over it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're operating the high but so, do, so does offshore oil and gas industry. But they choose that whenever they put um, people inside a submersible that they have responsibility for, that they manage their risk by getting having it certified.
0: Right. Mr. Owen, I mean, um, before the news, before we took the break, uh, took a break for the news, uh, we were talking about the regulation of deep sea expeditions. And you mentioned uh, that uh, the lack of accountability was a problem. So in in future, how do you think um, um, deep sea expeditions should should be regulated?
3: Well, again, I'm not sure they can be regulated per se because they're operating outside of uh, any jurisdictional boundaries. The regulation will come from the market that will say, I'm not going to go on board this. I want to see some sort of evidence that, that others have looked at the, sort of the uh, safety analysis of it and that the risks to me are, um, are risk shared, if you like, by, by them having been reviewed by competent people hmm. and, 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 more importantly, independent
1: yeah, I'm sure OceanGate's going to have a little trouble uh, attracting customers in the in the near future, mm-hmm. um, Professor Fusil. What what is the interaction between the shipbuilding industry and private operators like this that want to try something different, something innovative? Um, I mean, you know, what, what, how does how does what is the dynamic between the two there? If, if somebody comes up with a new design, they arrive at a shipbuilding facility and say, "This is what I want you to build." How much responsibility is on the shipbuilder? Uh, beyond producing to specifications that they're provided with?
4: If we are doing this in the Australian context, for instance, the, the shipbuilder has uh, to exert a, a due diligence. That means that the shipbuilder cannot just be handed off a design and say, "Yeah, I'm just manufacturing uh, as the blueprints are, so to speak, but the shipbuilder would have to make sure that the asset that is manufactured in uh, the facilities are indeed safe uh, to be uh, operated. And, and and that would require um, a shipbuilder with a sense of responsibility and due diligence to go up uh, into the food chain and to ask the evidence in, in the design and then to have a proper set of verification and validation for the manufactured uh, product to make sure that what is being delivered is actually fit for purpose. Hmm.
1: And would they have to provide? Spec- I, I assume, uh, as a CYA move, they would provide specifications to say we have built this and it should be operated under these conditions. And if you go outside of these conditions, we are not responsible. Is there is there a contract or or some kind of a something like that built into the agreement? Hmm. I, mean, I mean, in this case, we have a submersible that was supposedly built to a certified pressure of 1,300 meters, but it was regularly going to 4,000 meters. Would the shipbuilder be like, nay, <laughs> not as I built it?
3: Uh, if I, I can jump in with that if I, if, yeah, if sure, I may. Please. Um, yes, they will say that. That They will say we will remove our, our certification if you operate outside the the um, boundaries that we, the scope of certification that we set, mm. that we've defined in this. Um, and if that's the case, it then becomes a reputational problem, mm-hmm. um, which then leads into other things. You know, uh, the market then um, saying, well, I, if they weren't take on this risk, then nor will I. Mm. Does, does the home port,
1: does the, the jurisdiction within the home port bear any responsibility if they were launching the ship And the submersible from uh, Saint John's Newfoundland. I mean, is this going to come back on on the Saint John's is 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 there any regulatory responsibility there? Or is it like well you guys leave from here but you go to international waters so then you're off our you know, you're out of our jurisdiction.
3: Well I think I think the the reg the um um, the oversight that gets applied there is that the ship isn't allowed to sail until the um then the securing to deck. Um, and the mobilising of this of the whole spread has been certified by an appropriate engineer, and that'll be because the ship itself won't allow it to. The port authorities won't say, "Oh, you haven't got that weld properly done." Mm-hmm. So it'll be the ship operator will say, "No, we're not going to sail because um, if this moves when, when we're in heavy weather, it'll sink my ship. I don't want to do that." Mm-hmm. Um, the it, it's 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 very difficult to and and really it's beyond i think my expertise to to really comment on these legal aspects but but i can I can uh, demonstrate my experience in it it will illustrate it with my experience but not necessarily give any sort of legal opinion right okay um, and if that's enough not enough of a disclaimer then uh, <laughs> I
1: don't know what is. We'll get the maritime lawyers on the next time we talk. Professor Fusil, um, I, I can only imagine that the, the buzz, the conversations among people that are in your uh, specialty, in your field, I imagine it's ferocious this week. What are people in the shipbuilding industry, in the shipbuilding uh, academia, what, what is the tone of their conversation? What are they focused on? What have what they picked out of this that we might have missed?
4: Well, I can only speak for myself on this because everyone would have a different opinion. But um, I mean, like you also guess, I mean, who work uh, or who have worked in those um, undersea environment, we we know that uh, it's it's very complex. So we often compare what we do in uh, the submersible or in the submarine engineering domain with what is done in space. Um, I think. A lot of us know that the, the pressures that uh, are crushing our uh, assets are, are enormous, and, and there is not a lot of room, and there is no room for, uh, for complacency. And, and I think that what we would like to convey, or what I would like to convey, is that we do our job whether we are teaching uh, students, whether we are in the uh, submarine industry. And and this is why sometimes it's it's a slow pace. We are quite conservative, but for good reasons. I'm going to give you a simple instance. We have been using uh, batteries on on submersibles and submarines for more than 100 years, and they were with lead-acid batteries. Even military submarines, we are only just by today moving to lithium-ion batteries because we know all the horror stories of what could go wrong with those brand new technology. So we go by small incremental steps in those uh, technological domain for good reasons. And that's basically, I guess, one of the lessons learned that we would like to to convey. Um, we are serious as a committee about what we do in that business. That that does not prevent anybody to to be bold. But there are still some boundaries that do exist. And if you don't play by some rules, then uh, tragedies will happen.
5: Hmm.
1: And apparently one has happened in this case. Uh, Very serious but fascinating topic as well. I'd like to thank uh, Frank Owen, retired submarine commander in the Royal Australian Navy and the former director of the Australian Submarine Escape and Rescue Project for joining us today. Uh, As well, Professor Eric Fossil, the Shipbuilding Hub Director at the University of Adelaide. Uh, Thanks to our producers for pulling in some great experts to join us today on Backchat. Thank you. 95
0: 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Happy 95th birthday, RTHK. Thank you for 95 years of public broadcasting service. Keep up the amazing work. I'm Janice Whailam. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned tuned with with Hong Kong. You're listening to BackChat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say.
1: And I'm Andrew Work. We're back on BackChat. I'm here with Janice Wong. And we're going from the very serious and somber topic of the, uh, I guess, the second nautical disaster at the site of the Titanic to something more lighthearted, small intestinal cancel fatalities. <laughs> it's a fun day today on Back Chat. Hey, Janice?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's not light It's very serious.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, all right. We are keeping it serious, but maybe this will be something that can have a direct impact in your life. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Jason Huang, who's a research assistant professor from the Jockey Club School of Public Health and Primary Care at Chinese University's uh, Medical School. Uh, good morning, Dr. Huang. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you, for, thank you for joining us. Um, Dr. Huang, uh, this, has been a, a, this is a multinational study that found that Hong Kong has kind of a special place uh, in terms of the results that came out. Can you tell us a little bit about what was discovered about uh, the, the study globally, but also about Hong Kong in particular?
5: Yes. Our research found that small intestinal cancer, although not very common, is becoming more common worldwide, including Hong Kong. In the past 10 years, the number of cases in Hong Kong has doubled. We study where and why this type of cancer occurs and how it is related to certain factors. We discovered that small intestinal cancer is more common in wealthier countries and it's linked to things like the country's wealth, people's living habits and certain diseases. Our study helps us understand this type of cancer better remind mind us of the importance of finding it early and preventing it. Of course.
1: Now, uh, let's get into the numbers a little bit. So when you say the numbers have doubled uh, over the past decade, so uh, I'm looking here, 2011, there were 88 cases in Hong Kong. In 2020, 164. Uh, I guess our population has increased in that time, gone down in the past year, but I mean, the population has increased Uh, people are living longer, which means, you know, as they get older, they have a higher chance of getting cancer just from sticking around. I mean, how do you control for those numbers? The absolute numbers don't sound great, but uh, could it just be population growth and an aging population? So we're just gonna have more of every kind of cancer?
5: The increase in the number of small intestinal cancer cases in the past decade can be attributed to multiple factors. Firstly, change in biology habits, and metabolic risk factors such as consuming more processed foods and increasing prevalence of conditions like diabetes may contribute to the rise in cases. Secondly, the aging population plays a role, as you mentioned, as this kind of cancer is more common among older individuals. Lastly, advancement in medical diagnostic tools have improved the detection and diagnosis of small intestinal cancer, leading to a higher number of cases being detected.
1: So higher population, yes. Aging population, yes. Better diagnostics, yes. So, I mean, when people hear the headlines, they're going to think, oh my God, everybody's getting small intestinal cancer. The cases are doubling. Something's gone wrong. Something needs to be fixed. Is that the case? Or is it, you know, is it just because we're living longer and we're better at detecting it? I mean, maybe it's not a bad thing.
5: Uh, Yes. Uh, Although it it is, it is becoming increasingly popular. We, we should be noted that it is still a rare in the form of a cancer compared with other more common cancers such as lung cancer and colorectal cancers. This is still very rare. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and you mentioned that so the cases in Hong Kong have uh, doubled uh, over the past decade. How does Hong Kong compare with other places in terms of uh, these cases?
5: In Hong Kong, the situation regarding small intestinal cancer is. Concerning, the number of cases have doubled over the past decade, including a inc- significant increase. Currently, the incidence rate of small intestinal cancer in Hong Kong is relatively high compared to the overall average. This means that more people in Hong Kong are being diagnosed with this type of cancer. It's important for healthcare professionals and policymakers to address this issue and take steps to improve early detection and prevention. Mm.
1: So if it's higher than the global average, fine. I mean, not fine, but notable. Um, But you've also noticed that it is higher in high-income jurisdictions. Is Hong Kong's rate of incidence higher than other jurisdictions that have similar levels of income?
5: Uh, Yes. The small intestinal cancer is more common in wealthier countries for a few reasons. One reason is that people in these countries often have unhealthy habits like eating too much junk food not exercising enough, and being overweight. These things can increase the chance of getting small intestinal cancer. Also, in wealthier countries, the healthcare system is better and doctors can detect and report cases more accurately. They have more resources and better access to medical care, which means that mm-hmm. they can find and treat this kind of cancer more effectively.
1: Yes, but do we have a higher rate of cancer than other jurisdictions that have the same levels of income?
5: Uh, I think uh, it's, it's a similar rate, but yeah, similar. But it, its increasing trend is it's a bit more remarkable than other high-income countries. Mm. Right. And when we
0: talk about uh, small intestinal cancer, I mean, um, what is the mortality rate for this kind of a cancer?
5: For the mortality rate, it's because detecting small intestinal cancer can be difficult because the symptoms are not very specific and can be confused with other stomach issues. This sometimes leads to late in diagnosis. As for how deadly it is, the chance of surviving small intestinal cancer depends on when it is found. If caught earlier, about eighty percent of people survive for at least five years. But if it is found at a later stage, the survival rate drops to only forty percent. How
1: expensive is it to test for this cancer, I mean, should every you know, uh, you know, we, we always have to weigh off the cost of testing for something versus the probability of it happening, the rate of fatality. Uh, some things, after a certain age, you want to test for every year. Some things you want to test every five to ten years because it's not that common uh, or it's very expensive to test for. How expensive is it to test for this?
5: Yeah, it is. Uh, it is rather expen- expensive to detect this small intestinal cancer. Mm-hmm. So uh, so before you go into uh, we we are not very recommended for regular checkup for this disease, only but only after the advice from your specialists, from your family doctors.
1: Okay. And we have had other people on the show. I think it's been it's been a little time, but in, in there's been recent news about tests that are being developed that are multi cancer detection tests. They can take a blood sample and detect the potential or the uh, or the or the uh, actuality of multiple cancers is small intestinal cancer included in these types of scientific breakthroughs? Is this one of the cancers they are looking for when you get a when you get a, a, a check for cancer?
5: No, at least not for now. Because if you want to screen for certain type of cancer, it has to be had a relatively high instance, Because we need to consider the the cost to prevent it. Uh, secondly, we also need to have some effective screening tools. Currently, there are no effective screening tools for small intestinal cancer. So, so we are not recommending to screening for small intestinal cancer at this stage. Mm-hmm. But in the future, if the incidence are going uh, up very high and, and we have more available effective screening tools, we might consider to include this into the screening program.
0: Right, and what about treatment? Is it uh, difficult to treat? Uh,
5: so, so for treatment, then it is mostly done by surgery uh, and together with chemotherapy.
1: So, typically, this is a chemotherapy, which I think most people know is very unpleasant. Uh yes. But if you get it early, it's better. Uh, in terms of the scanning, what? How do you? How do you find it? I asked about the cost of it, but how do they do it? Is, is this? Is this? A, would they? go into your stomach and take a biopsy of something? Uh, would they throw you in an M- MRI scanner? I think you said there's no blood test for it yet. Uh, what's the typical means of diagnosis?
5: Uh, firstly, you mean, uh, if you have such uh, symptoms, uh, you may uh, go, go under a CT scan. So after the CT scan, because during, we will do an endoscopy. Because doing endoscopy is very, uh, very expensive and uncomfortable. So we, we need to take some CT scan before that.
0: Right. And then what are the main symptoms?
5: So the main symptoms include tummy pain, loss of appetite, bleeding in the digestive tract, weight loss, blockage in the intestine, and yellowing of the skin and eyes. It's not easy to detect because this symptom can be mistaken for other stomach issues.
1: Right. So, in other words, they they would try out and see if it was like ten other things, and then finally be like, "Oh, maybe it's small intestinal cancer."
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and does it usually affect uh, older people, or uh, or can it also affect uh, young
5: people? So, uh, small intestinal cancer can affect people of different age groups, but it is more commonly diagnosed in middle age and older individuals. The median age at diagnosis is around 66 years. While it's possible to develop small intestinal cancer at a younger age, the risk generally increases as people get older. It's important for individuals in this age group to be aware of the potential symptoms and seek medical attention if they experience any concerning signs, such as abdominal pain, lots of appetite, gastrointestinal bleeding, weight loss, or other digestive issues. Mm. Early detection and timely treatment can lead to
1: better outcomes. And I understand that because it is so hard to detect, quite often it shows up somewhere else. So you've got something, maybe it's in your lungs or your heart, and then they say, oh, let's have a look. And then when they run the genetics, they're like, "Hmm, small intestinal cancer in your heart or in your lungs because it has metastasized. Uh, But by then, you're probably in pretty big trouble, Yes.
5: Yes, i uh, sorry, I didn't catch your question. Well, I mean, I
1: mean, apparently, because it's so hard to detect in the small intestine, you, quite often it's detected after it's already metastasized and shows up somewhere else in the body. Uh,
5: yes, yeah, so uh, so usually when it is detected, it, it is at a latent stage because it's not easy to detect it.
1: All right, well, that that's one that we're going to have to uh, continue to keep an eye out for. Of course, as always, live healthy, people, because there's a lot of other cancers out there that might get you before this one, so... Get your exercise, eat your vegetables. Thank you very much to Dr. Jason Huang, Research Assistant Professor from the Jockey Club School of Public Health and Primary Care at the Chinese University of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, I'd like to thank Janice Huang. Janice, it's been great doing it with thank you. Thank you. Had a nice little rest to come back supercharged for the show today. Also, thanks to our producer, Rafael Blet, and of course, our sound engineer, uh, Wing Ming. Thank you very much for doing such a great job. This has been Back Chat. We're going to be back. Uh, We'll have Money Talk at 8 a.m. on Monday with me, Andrew Work, and then Back Chat. And once again, Janice will be on with Philip Wong.